Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. This is Florida Matters. I'm Matthew Petty. Jeff Brandis spent 12 years in the Florida legislature. As a senator, the St. Petersburg Republican was sometimes at odds with his own party on multiple issues. On homeowners insurance reforms, he says bills passed last year are too little too late. On criminal justice reforms, Brandis says the Florida Department of Corrections gives little thought to rehabilitation or the safety of inmates and correctional officers. Although term limits kept him from returning to Tallahassee, Brandis still wants to help shape policy. He stopped by the Donna studio at WUSF to explain how he aims to do that with his new non-profit, non-partisan Florida policy project. Later in the show, we discuss former President Donald Trump, Governor Ron DeSantis, and the impact of the presidential campaign on Florida. But first, Brandis talked about four policy areas where he says the state needs better strategy, homeowners insurance, criminal justice, transportation, and housing. Well, Jeff Brandis, thank you so much for joining me. I appreciate it. Great to be with you. You were a Florida lawmaker for more than 10 years. You now have a new venture, the Florida Policy Project. So what's your focus for this project? So my big takeaway after doing the legislature for 12 years uh, and serving two years in the House and 10 years in the Senate was everything in Tallahassee to me was tactical. And and for the most part, there wasn't a larger strategy. And so my, you know, I, I, I could tell you that I really didn't know who to go to on you know, criminal justice and who was the expert in Florida on criminal justice and what the best practices were. Same with property insurance. I mean, look at all the moves they've made lately in property insurance that were all little tactical moves, but they didn't play towards a larger strategy. And I recognized that really, in, in my view, the only place where Florida really had a larger strategy was education. Why? Because Jeb Bush had started a foundation two decades ago and had every year worked towards establishing a strategy. So there was huge areas of public policy that had no strategy and everything going on year to year was tactical. So I thought there was a market uh, opportunity to create the Florida Policy Project and really kind of bring policy experts and best practices to bear so that we identify the best practices around the country and and, uh, and then make a cadre of experts available to the legislature to develop, to develop out the strategy. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your personal experience and how that shaped the way you approach issues and policy in Florida. What do you see as the driving factors there? Look, you know, I got involved in criminal justice space after I saw, you know, I was sitting on a panel and there was a discussion about an inmate in Miami who had been thrown in the shower. He had acted out in a cell. They had threw it in the shower. The corrections officers turned the shower all the way up, like to the hottest temperature they could, and left him there. And ultimately, he passed away in the shower. Nobody was ever charged for that crime. Um, and it was kind of almost like swept under the rug. And and they were presenting in committee. And I remember one of this, my, there was only five members of that committee. And there was one person on their cell phone, somebody else typing on their computer. And, and I had this kind of visceral reaction, like I was at a plane at 30,000 feet with an engine out, upside down, and nobody at the controls. And so I started doing the one thing that legislators are allowed to do, which is started to tour prisons. And I toured dozens and dozens of prisons throughout Florida. And what I saw was that 85% of Florida's prisons are not air conditioned. I saw that a vast majority of prisons had no activities, that inmate idleness was just everywhere that I looked was inmate idleness. There was nothing going on in these facilities. And so I truly believed, at least in the, 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 
the criminal justice space, that we had a Department of Warehousing and not an Department of Corrections. And so that's why it became a concern of mine and an area of focus that I continue to do a deep dive on. Property insurance, look, nobody has to look very far to realize that Florida plays four times the national average and frankly is is was teetering on the brink hmm. last year of losing its entire property insurance market. Uh, Citizens is now up well over 1.3 million policies going to 2 million policies. That's another kind of key point. You know, Citizens for me is the barometer of health of Florida's market. Hmm. And what it's saying right now is this market is really, really sick. And so, you know, those are just kind of two areas. But, you know, we can go on to housing affordability, which, you know, look, has become one of the top issues in the state of Florida at this point. I do want to talk about the homeowners insurance crisis in Florida because you have been pretty outspoken about that in your time in the legislature. But let me come back to criminal justice for a moment. And one of the things you pushed for in terms of trying to move the needle on criminal justice reform was you made attempts to try and reduce mandatory minimum sentences to reduce that prison population. I'm wondering, like, why is criminal justice reform so hard to do? Why was it so hard to do while you're in office? It's by far the hardest area of public policy to work on. It really is. I mean, it, you know, insurance and property and 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 home um, home affordability and transportation mm-hmm. are so much easier than working on criminal justice policy. There's just that, that tells you something about how difficult it correct. is. Correct. Those issues aren't easy either. Really, really difficult issues, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think you know, I think one, there's fear. There's two, a lack of knowledge. Many legislators have no experience with the criminal justice system. They've never toured prisons. They don't, you know, some of them don't know people who've committed felonies or have been in prison. Um, And so just exposing them to the prison system is kind of step one of getting them to understand that, you know, one of my favorite, one of my good friends, a guy named Sean Hopwood, who is a professor at Georgetown, but also spent 10 years in federal prison. Mm. um, You know, he, he has this kind of saying that character isn't static and people change. And I think what you see in Florida's prison system and, and the, the way that the criminal justice system is set up here is it's punishment first and this idea that we're going to rehabilitate, but there's no real rehabilitation going on. And, there, and so we're not really correcting any behaviors. We're really just warehousing people until they get older and we aren't going to commit new crimes. And now we're, we're, we're warehousing them in very old, dilapidated facilities and uh, with enough, not enough corrections officers there to ensure the, the corrections officer's safety or the inmate's safety. Mm. Are you sort of out on a limb, though, when it comes to the Republican Party and the your colleagues in the Republican Party? I mean, that doesn't seem like it would be a popular opinion. Yeah, well, I actually think that um, I think criminal justice reform is, is one of those kind of transpartisan issues, right? I think everybody kind of approaches it from a different from a, from a different angle, mm. but I think as an issue of, of personal liberty um, and and you know responsibility. I think there's a, and, and financial responsibility. I think Republicans should be rallying around this issue because we're wasting billions of dollars, oftentimes incarcerating the wrong people and not putting resources towards the right people. I don't think anybody could say we're putting all the resources towards the right people in Florida. But when you say if you're a candidate or you're saying you know this is the party of law and order and you're you're going to be tough on crime. Like, isn't it hard then to separate yourself from that and say, well, that might not actually work? Yeah. So I think that's the general view. I think that's the general opinion. But I think if you look around the country, the states that are making the broadest reform in their criminal justice system are red states. Mm. And and you Uh, tie that to economic issues? I think I tie it to a variety of issues. I think they tie it to a system that just isn't working. They're not, you know, oftentimes in policy, people focus on intent, but then they don't look at the outcomes. And the outcomes in our prison systems across the country are terrible. And so how do we get better outcomes? 
which is what the Florida Policy Project focuses on is, you know, we want best practices. What are the best practices in handling our veterans, mm-hmm. our seniors in the prison population? What's the best practice for diversion, for electronic monitoring, for all of these different technologies and, and frankly, policies? I like to think of the states as 50 different laboratories all running different experiments. Some of them are coming up with better outcomes than Florida is. Well, great. You know what? We could just go adopt their policies and we should receive similar outcomes. It isn't that difficult, but we have to ask the questions and look. Do you think, though, given how difficult it is to move the needle on criminal justice reform from within the legislature, are you going to be able to make some progress on that from outside? Absolutely. In fact, I think that's the place where it has to happen. It has to happen from outside. I think you're starting to see a grassroots support of people who recognize, listen, Florida, having 85% of your prisons on air conditioned and having them underguarded and having no activities for inmates while they're incarcerated. Listen, half of our inmates can't read at the sixth grade level, and yet most of our inmates have no access to basic reading education. How is that good policy, right? Understand, most of the people in the Florida prison system are ultimately going to get out, and they're going to be living in our communities. Do we want them to be educated? Do we be able to hold a job, be able to pay rent? Yes, all of those things are things that the state should have an active plan to help these people rise up from their current situation. And while they're incarcerated with us for three or four or five years, we should be investing in those individuals so that they can have better outcomes when they get out. Let me ask you about something connected to that, that you've also been fairly outspoken on and, and pushed for policies in favor of, and that's medical marijuana or marijuana mm-hmm. in general. Now, you filed bills for recreational marijuana right. use during your time in office. They didn't go anywhere. But I'm wondering, do you think Florida will decriminalize marijuana use? Like, where do you see that going? I think it's a matter of time. It's not a matter of if it's going to do it to when it's going to do it and how it's going to do it. For me, the current system of medical marijuana is it, it's kind of the biggest blunder the state has, one of the biggest blunders the state has made. We have created this vertically integrated system that only a handful of people really make money in the state. You and I could virtually never be in that business. We're about to be a state. They're about to issue about 20 new licenses. So we're be about to be about to be a state because of vertical integration where we have you know, 20 or 40 licenses out on the street mm. and nobody growing. And, and there's just a, a bit of a sidebar here for our listeners who may not be clued. And this is so you have to be able to grow it to be able to sell it, essentially. <laughs> you have to be able to grow it. You have to be able to process it. You have to be able to distribute it. You have to be able to retail it. I mean, all of those things at enormous cost. Like imagine if McDonald's had to go out and grow the cows and grow the tomatoes and grow the wheat and process all those things in order to make your hamburger. I mean, that's essentially what medical marijuana companies have to do. And that's why it costs 40 to $50 million, even once you get the license, to be in the business. Hmm. And on top of that, you're running with companies that have already been in the business for four or five years and have established many of the best markets. And so, so there's just incredible headwinds. And frankly, even the medical marijuana companies want to get away from vertical integration because not all of them are experts at growing or all of them are experts at retailing. Some of them have different expertises. And so, you know, we kind of defy the rules of economics when we force everybody to vertical integration. And it's why people run out of product all the time. That's why many of the medical marijuana companies in Florida have gone broke. Mm. Um, and, and we're seeing people starting to flip licenses now. But this whole kind of scheme of medical marijuana in Florida was kind of built on this false premise that, oh, it's going to be just Florida businesses and Florida farmers who within you know 30 days figured out, oh, I can just sell the shares of my company. And now my company that was growing you know daffodils six months ago is now a, you know, and worth $3 million is now a $40 million company just because of this piece of paper that it's authorized. And, and so people were selling these licenses for ridiculous amounts of money. And ultimately, that did nothing 
to help the patients of the state of Florida. So that's medical marijuana. What about legalizing it? Yeah, I think adult use is just a matter of time. Like it, ju- it just is. It's, it's, and, and frankly, for many of the medical marijuana companies, that's why they're supporting the constitutional amendment because that's how they're going to grow their market. Hmm. Um, you know, at, in many places, they're kind of running into the, 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 the kind of total addressable market for medical is, is fairly limited even in Florida. And so, especially with all these competitors coming online. So the way that they're going to grow it is going into adult use. But frankly, amongst the other states that have moved into the adult use, if it's done smartly, it can be done well, and it can reduce some of the criminal activity that's actually going on where we have this continue to have this strong black market in Florida for marijuana. I want to come back to homeowners insurance. Now, in 2022, the legislature passed a law that aimed to fix the homeowners insurance crisis, it's, among other things, limited homeowners' ability to sue over insurance claims and created a $1 billion reinsurance fund. You called that bill too little too late. What do you see as the solution to this crisis we have in homeowners insurance? Well, I mean, listen, the, the legislature knew about this problem four years ago and they chose not to address it. It's like, you know, they were the the engineers at, at Chernobyl who are watching this thing about to go go into meltdown and yet they let it kind of, they, they just chose not to do anything until frankly it got to a point where, where we were about to lose the market. Overall, mm-hmm. we we're about to lose the market. So they had a special session in May of last year, which they did a little bit. And then they come back because that didn't work. And we told them that it didn't work, right? And then they come in in December and basically did what they should have done back in May and frankly should have done three or four years ago in order so that, so that it wouldn't have gotten this bad for everyday Floridians who are now facing paying four times the national average in property insurance that their counterparts are around the country. So you think there's some good parts in the bill? Absolutely. Listen, getting away from one-way attorney's fees, ending assignment of benefits were huge pieces of this legislation that will make meaningful differences down the road. Hmm. But we've always told people that everything that you do in the property insurance world, especially when it comes to changing the law, takes 18 to 24 months to kind of run through the system. And if we use you know, the time that we actually started to treat the disease, the real disease, um, as December, and we just kind of say, what is 18 to 24 months from there? We're not looking for real changes in homeowner's property insurance pricing until January of 25. I wonder, though, when, when you think about the impact of that particular part of the legislation, the one-way attorney's fees, I mean, there are a lot of folks who say, well, the reason there are so many of these lawsuits and Florida is kind of lopsided in that regard is because insurance companies aren't paying out when they should be. Well, I mean, if you think about the challenge that Florida faces right now, Florida is the most hurricane-prone state, and there's literally nothing we can do about that. But we are by orders of magnitude the most litigious state in the country. Florida had 8% of total U.S. property claims last year. But we were 80% of the national litigation in property insurance was occurring in the state of Florida. So we can't be the most hurricane-prone state and the most litigious state in the country and expect low property insurance rates. And at the same time, the insurance industry as a whole in Florida lost a billion dollars a year for the last five years. So no investor is going to come in, which means the citizen's property insurance is going to swell well beyond what it was designed for, which is where it's at right now. I mean, people don't realize citizens only has you know eight to ten billion dollars in cash right now, hmm. but is approaching five to six hundred billion dollars of potential liabilities of kind of total insured value of the of the properties that they have. So you're talking one or two big storms, and all of a sudden, citizens' property policyholders will face a massive assessment, which can be up to 45% of their current premium. And then you and I, even if we don't have a citizen's policy, will back that up with money coming out of our policies. 
and, and an additional premium to us in order to backfill there because citizens technically can't fail. But I mean, I guess my question is like, there are still going to be some folks who say, look, I have a legitimate claim on my roof or sure. siding or whatever it may be. But now I'm, I'm even, you know, even less recourse to, to try and be made whole because I can't, you know, sue. No, you can still sue. You can still sue. You can go to appraisal. You can go to mediation. There's, mm-hmm. there's a variety of different tactics you can take. It's just not saying that if you get $1 more than what your property insurer offered you in a settlement, that you're going to get all of your attorney's fees paid for. Because that was just a huge incentive to the trial bar to go out and sign up as many customers as they can, move to settle and get all their insurance costs paid for. Listen, if you want to sue your insurance company, if that's the pathway you choose to go through versus all of these other methods, then listen, you should have some skin in the game and pay your attorney. Don't expect that that will be paid for by your property insurance company because many of these property insurance companies, like a citizen's property insurance company, the state's own property insurer, was getting sued 900 times a month last year. They were spending $100 million just in legal defense costs. Now, if you don't think that's going on around the state of Florida with all of these different property insurers and that, that that's not going to affect rates, right? that's what's driving the rates through the roof. That's why Floridians are paying four times the national average. So, Mr. Brandis, let me come back to another aspect of that, which I guess is housing affordability. Now, your group has put out some research into housing affordability. You're focused on the lack of housing supply. How do you go about fixing that? Again, there are things we can change and there's things we can't, right? We're not going to be able to really affect demand in Florida. 800 to 1,000 people move to Florida every single day. How do we affect supply? So the legislature passed the Live Local Act this year. Largely that focused on apartments and uh, making apartments uh, more affordable. But we think that there is no way that you're going to solve this without actually addressing at the local level the zoning changes. And some of the changes that need to happen at the local level are really going to be the primary drivers. And so the things that we point out in our report are things like allowing for accessory dwelling units, we'll call them mother-in-law suites, allowing for those um, in, in more properties and creating more rental properties for individuals. We look at smaller lot sizes. We allow, look for allowing duplexes and quads in uh, uh, more residential communities that are typically single-family home communities. It's an all-hands-on-deck situation. And again, it's going to take years and years for us to deal with this. But the people are coming. And until we align incentives appropriately at the local level, then we're not going to see the kind of outcomes that we want. For example, Pasco County had a moratorium on new apartments. Mm. At the same time, Pasco County was begging for dollars for affordable housing. So how do we ensure we're aligning incentives so that communities aren't shutting off a product that will ultimately be affordable at the same time that they're begging the state for more money for affordable housing? You're listening to Florida Matters. We'll get back to our conversation with former state senator Jeff Brandis after the break. Welcome back to Florida Matters. I'm Matthew Petty. We're talking with former state senator Jeff Brandis about his new venture, the Florida Policy Project. The St. Petersburg Republican wants to help steer conversation on issues like homeowners insurance, housing and criminal justice reform. We'll also talk about why he doesn't think Florida's new controversial immigration law will be enforced and the impact of the presidential campaign on state politics. Is there a, a more of a role for local government in affordable housing? I mean, it, it seems like a lot of governments are getting away from that, but should should there be 
government-owned housing, for example. There's always going to be some type of that. I am much more in favor of, of vouchers and market-based housing than I am of, of government-controlled housing. One, government-controlled housing is incredibly expensive to build, totally inefficient to build it, uh, because obviously those projects take two or three years to build, and they'll build 200 units. Well, when you need 10,000 units, right, <laughs> a year, and you're building at 200 units a year, right, that math never works. So how do I work with private developers and make it easier for them to come in and develop market rate product, and then the government just has to focus on one thing, which is vouchers. Hmm. But if it doesn't fix its zoning, none of this is ultimately going to work. You're never going to outbuild the demand in Florida right now using government programs. You've got to figure out how to get tap into uh, market-based financing, working with banks in order to get the, them to finance your projects um, so that you can be f- move forward. If you think about you know, your hometown, St. Petersburg, for example, and, and this issue of zoning, I mean, what kind of opposition do you see to smaller lot sizes, uh, more of that accessory housing as you're talking about? Like, is there going to be some pushback to people saying this is going to wreck the character of our city? Well, I think you have this interesting dynamic going on between the NIMBYs, the not-in-my-backyard individuals, and the YIMBYs, the yes-in-my-backyard individuals, because I think the yes-in-my-backyard individuals recognize that, that ultimately this is going to be the only solution. Look, go talk to the hospitals in, in Pinellas County. Go talk to the police officers in Pinellas County and figure out where are they where are they living, where are their employees living, right? And they're struggling to find housing in, in our community. Um, and so we have to provide more supply. So what is the county strategy and city's strategy for pro- providing more supply and getting it online? That's the kind of ultimate question we need to be asking every one of these, these counties. And that's why, like, I would recommend if the state was going to do one thing, force the cities and counties to put forward a plan to address affordable housing and tie any dollars from the state of Florida that are going to come into those communities for affordable housing to not only having a plan, but implementing the plan. And the plan better include changes to zoning. Hmm. So connected to that, I guess, transportation, there's some pretty big challenges facing Tampa Bay and Florida writ large. A lot of that's related to population growth, the need to upgrade mass transit, alleviate congestion. What solutions do you want to see? So I think there's there's three kind of fascinating things going on in the world of transportation. The world is getting more shared, it's getting more electric, and it's getting more automated. Those three are the kind of the three mega trends. I think 2010 to 2020 was the decade of, of the shared economy when Uber and Lyft and DoorDash all kind of came online. I think 2020 to 2030 will be the decade of electrification. And I think 2030 and beyond will be the decade of automation, where we're going to see kind of automated vehicles delivering product and driving people to and from where they want to go in a much safer uh, system. And so we have to recognize these are kind of the global trends, but also we're going to have, you know, Florida's the number two state in the country for electric vehicles right now behind California. Uh, We just have had mass adoption, but I can tell you our charging infrastructure is nowhere near where it needs to be. You know, I was looking for a charging station as I pulled in here Mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, couldn't find one. I I visited Epcot the other day. There was four charging stations available in all of Epcot's parking lot, uh, which is pretty amazing. Legoland only had two and they were both broken uh, when I went in two weeks ago. So look, the charging infrastructure in Florida is anemic at best and we've got to do more at scale working with the public utilities, working with the private market parties to address the kind of growing challenge of, of electrification mm. that's coming to Florida. It's a great opportunity too, but it's also going to be a challenge. But on top of that, we have to provide 
more arteries into the kind of blood system of Florida to allow people to go from A to B. Florida had this M-course plan that was put in place under uh, President Bill Galvano of the Senate back a couple of years ago that was then undone. Can you explain what that is? Sure. It was a plan of multiple new corridors throughout the state of Florida. Think of, you know, the new Veterans Expressway. Or but, a, but this is just roads, right? I mean, just, These are just roads, right? Okay. So, so I think it's, it's a combination of roads and, and other strategies, right? I don't think most of these communities are designed or going to have light rail in them. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's probably viable. Unlike New York, which has about half the subway stops in America are in New York. So people think, oh, what's due to it? New York does. Mm-hmm. It's really not viable in Florida uh, because one, you're not going to build underground here. But two, just the, the amount of time that it would take to purchase the land, build the system and operate it uh, effectively, you would spend literally billions and billions of dollars that would be wasted on largely those plans. I think where they could do is more bus rapid transit. I think mm-hmm. that's that's viable and, and can be done, especially if they can use existing infrastructure to do it or build new infrastructure that can be shared between the bus rapid transit and, and cars. I wanted to ask too about some other kind of, I guess, bigger picture things. Florida's new immigration law, among other things, mandates e-verify for businesses with more than 25 employees. What do you think of that? I, I think that it will be interesting to see how long that stays on the books and whether they actually ever enforce it. Mm. Do you think it's a good law? I, I don't know that it's enforceable in Florida at scale. You know, where is the first arrest on the enforcement side? I think it's policy and name only. I don't think that they have really any desire to enforce that at scale. Because if they would force that at scale, you would see most building projects in the state of Florida stop. You would see agriculture in the state of Florida stop. You would see a variety of other challenges that occur across the state, including roads being built, including, you know, all your condos, all your, you know, homes. I mean, a a lot of that will cease to exist. Uh, We've got to find a pathway forward nationally on immigration. Uh, And I think Florida's plan, you know, know, until they're going to go out and if they start go out and arresting people, that's when you see that they're serious about it. I don't think they're serious about it. I think this was put in place to help DeSantis as he's run for president of the United States. I want to ask you about the politics and Florida appears to have become more politically divided over the last 10 years. I mean, the United States as a whole appears more polarized. Do you see a more cooperative political landscape emerging in the future though? Absolutely. Look, I think when you have your governor running for president of the United States, they kind of shift towards national politics. And I think that's what's occurred here in Florida, right? You have a governor who basically has shifted his entire goal over the last three years. I mean, you could feel it in Tallahassee shifting towards that national kind of politics and not really addressing some of the problems that the state of Florida was dealing with, but kind of taking on some of these nationalized issues. And I think once, you know, however this gets resolved, either he becomes president or he doesn't, which are the two outcomes that are likely here, then we're going to kind of revert to the mean of addressing Florida's problems. Mm. I think the best governors that Florida has ever had are the ones that have focused on being governor. And I think this is a problem that's actually unique to Florida. Listen, if you're the governor of Alabama, if you're the governor of Mississippi, Louisiana, unlikely you're going to be a presidential nominee or a presidential candidate, right? And so largely you focus on doing the job of governing the state the best you can. Unfortunately in Florida, our governors tend to seek for always seeking higher office. And so they stop doing their current job and they look to do the next job. I want a governor that's focused on Florida and Florida only. Obviously, DeSantis isn't the only one running, the only Floridian running for president on the Republican ticket. Uh, there are three of them in total. Do you support any of them? Uh, look, I, you know, I definitely support DeSantis over Trump. Um, I, you know, um, beyond that, I'm, I'm not making any any calls and keeping my powder dry until later in the in the cycle to see how this thing plays out. 
do you see yourself back in elected office sometime? Somewhere along the line. Listen, it's a passion of mine. I love working and serving. I love solving tough problems. And I think, you know, my team was incredibly successful when we were in the legislature. The, the great thing I look at is like, where is my staff gone since? And, you know, they're holding some of the highest offices in Florida right now and, and serving uh, both the governor and in, in other places. So uh, to me, that's the most exciting thing for an ex-elected official is to watch their team kind of continue to grow. And on the outside, when I do choose to come back, if I do come back into elected office, I'm going to have a basket of knowledge in a variety of different policy areas and great relationships in order to get there. Been speaking with Jeff Brandis, former state senator from St. Petersburg. He now heads up a nonpartisan research institute called the Florida Policy Project, focused on issues like housing, insurance, transportation, and criminal justice reform. Thank you so much. My honor. Thank you. And that's Florida Matters for this week. You can find us online at wusfnews.org or via Facebook or Twitter. Search for Florida Matters. Denora Prevost is our producer. Engineering support from Blake Bass. I'm Matthew Petty. Thanks for listening.